This morning we're going to focus on verse 6. Hear it again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. I wonder, have you ever been really hungry? Really hungry. Or maybe really thirsty. Now, the, the extent of my being really hungry is basically having to wait a little bit longer for Thanksgiving dinner and expressing that through the righteousness of my being hangry. But really hungry, really thirsty. As you know, we live out here in the desert. Remember one of the first times I visited Santa Fe, went to a hotel. You walk into the hotel, you know, there's a little sign in the bathroom. Welcome to Santa Fe. Glad you're here. Uh, if you need to use the shower, fine. If you have to use the toilet, okay, I guess if you must. If you use the sink, turn it off as quickly as possible and just the desert, water. Water is life. Water is life here. And all this, you know, warm weather that we're experiencing, I guess that's cool. I mean, not really. I'd kind of like to go snowboarding at some point before Jesus comes back. And warm is okay. Warm is okay. But dry could be a real issue. We are thirsty. The land is thirsty. And if you've ever been really parched, you know, maybe you went on a hike and had a half-full Nalgene and it was enough for the way up, but on the way down, you paid the price. If you've ever been really parched, then you join with the psalmist in Psalm 42, experiencing what the Lord would have us experience about him and his righteous ways in the world as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. We are made with desires, hunger, and thirst, and we are made to be satisfied. In fact, we live to be satisfied. So much of what we do is to be satisfied. I do, you do, and when the onion gets peeled back, isn't that really kind of the nature of our, our striving and our life in the world? To find something that really satisfies, something that's enough. So much of our time and our energy and our resources goes toward creating such an environment in which we feel, even if for just a moment, kind of in control of our surroundings and satisfied. Yet, as I study this text this week, as always, conviction, realizing that one of my main struggles, and it's no fault of, you know, my, my parents, and it's no fault of upbringing, and, you know, this is just the water that we swim in, immediate gratification. What do you mean my two-day package is a day late? What do you mean? 48 hours. Never being satisfied, that, that nothing is quite ever enough. When every, you know, X isn't enough, and when you get X, there's always a, a Y, standing behind it, precariously taunting. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, you know, every day has enough trouble of its own. So just, you know, don't worry. Focus on today. Receive what is yours from the Lord and rest. And I want that. I want rest. Real rest for my soul. Not, not the circumstances that are always changing. 
I mean, even the last couple years, just decision fatigue and the whiplash of do this. No, don't do this. Do that. No, no, you can do this now. No, no, you can't. It's exhausting. And so the question comes to us as a body and to you, where do you go for satisfaction? What feels like if I had that, I'd be good. If I just had that, I'd be good. If I just had that thing, you know, at work or in this relationship or perhaps in my bank account, I would be good. It would be enough. It would be enough. Be satisfied. And this has been man's quest from the very beginning to hunger and thirst for the right thing, the right righteousness that provides sufficient, enough, full satisfaction. And yet in the first service, I put my unrighteousness on full display. And I committed before the entire first service a great and grievous musical sin. Trying to sound smart, I guess. I was going to say something about how there were these 20th century theologians who wrote a great song speaking about satisfaction. You know, you've heard of this band, The Doors, and you've heard of the song, of course, I Can't Get No But then everyone yelled at me and said, it's the Rolling Stones, man. It's the Rolling Stones. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I mean, an entire generation offended. You know, unrighteousness on full display. I'm only just glad that my, my father and my wife weren't here to, uh, you know, to see that. You know, Caitlin promptly said to John, who's a music lover, you better hold him accountable next time. And I said, yeah, because I'm going to use that other great song by the doors, I See a Red Door and I Want It Painted Black. And they're just like, oh my gosh, he's hopeless. That one's by the Stones too. But the song stands, I can't get no satisfaction. That's the, that's the emphatic punch of the, of the chorus. But I really love the follow-up to that because it's not without effort. Because I try and I try and I try and I try. Four times repeated. It's not only that I, I'm looking for satisfaction in every corner, but it's that the effort and the striving seems to be endless. Or to quote another band, and I better get this one right, you too, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Well, what about you? What about you? Again, this has been man's quest in the ages to be satisfied. For the Greeks, it was the pursuit of wisdom, logic, and rationality. Of course, out of that developed a whole host of conflicting schools. And the problem was you could never be fully satisfied because there'd always be someone wiser and smarter than you. For Rome, it was glory, power, and the will to power, especially power in your, your home, in your business, and in battle. And yet, whenever someone attained glory they realized it could be taken from them just as easily at two brute, and even the empire itself, as glorious as it was, eventually fell. We would do well to consider our own idols and false gods in the pursuit of I can't get no satisfaction, but I try and try and try. In our day and age, perhaps the false god of materialism. Look, we know things aren't going to make us happy. We know that, and yet that's still where we go so often. Because when life is hard, we engage our coping mechanisms, and even, we know, even though we know it won't ultimately satisfy, maybe if just for a moment, if I, I buy that thing, if I do that thing, you know, that, that little bit of 
dopamine. It'll last for just a minute, but it's never enough. You never look like the person in the advertisement. Consumerism, I think, is another false god of satisfaction in our day. That if I can't find satisfaction in one thing, I can just consume another. And sadly, this bleeds over into our relationships. It even bleeds over into the church where we might be prone, I know I am and would be, to focus more on our individual needs and preferences than on the good of the body as a whole. But, but we live in a day where you can kind of go from the buffet, you know, and, and curate for yourself uh, kind of, you know, the perfect little child. I've got this music that I like and this preacher that I like and this thing. And, you know, I think I just stay home and watch online. And yet, if the polls are to be believed, recent polls, and some of you are, are fraught and worried about the young people along just these lines, people seem to be more unsatisfied than they've ever been. Rates of dissatisfaction, even depression, seem to be up. I read a study this last week correlating those things with the amount of time, and I am the chief among sinners, that we spend with our faces firmly planted in a screen. Why do we have more than we've ever had? Why, why have we bowed more than we've ever bowed to the, to the gods of materialism and consumerism, and yet people are less satisfied seemingly than ever? So the, the beatitude begs the question, is satisfaction even possible? And if so, what does it look like to hunger and thirst for righteousness? What, what is this hunger and thirst, and what is this righteousness, and how do we even go about it? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, but in particular the Beatitudes, shows us what it looks like for people who are trusting the Father and His promises through the Son by the Spirit to live out the life of the kingdom. The kingdom way in this blessing, this promise, is to deeply long for God's righteousness. And it's conditional. If you do and as you do, you will be, you shall be satisfied. The very thing that each of us on any given day is longing for. And there's three ways that I see this in our text. Three things I think are important for us to understand this particular blessing promise. The first is this, that God himself promotes our deep desire. I think we need to start here. God himself promotes our deep desire. He made us to hunger and thirst. You know, there's something really, really special about these two Greek verbs here. Really special about these two words, hunger and thirst. You know what it is? Nothing. They literally just mean hunger and thirst in the most common language available in Koine Greek in the days of Jesus. They just mean to hunger and thirst. This is what we're supposed to do, to, to long for, to desire the very righteousness and goodness of God. So look, desire is not the issue. This is important. We were made good. We were made in the garden. We were made with God to desire God, to desire one another, to be in intimate relationship with one another and creation, to partake of the fruit and the trees and the fields and to feast. Desire is a good thing. The problem isn't desire. It's our misdirected desires. It's that we are so, easy, we are so quick to take a good thing and make it a God thing to take a good thing and exalt it into the place of an ultimate thing. We either desire in the wrong direction or perhaps we desire too much of a good thing. 
And so verse 6 here for us is an honest audit. It's a question for us. What do you really long for? What really is the hope and the aim and the object of your desire? And in the asking of this question, Jesus kindly and mercifully to us, again, as John said earlier, not to harass us or to, to beat us up, but as children, to turn us from the empty well toward the living water. Jesus does this honest audit on our soul through the question, what do we really hunger and thirst for, to expose what is really the root of sin, which is not a tisk tisk. I said a bad word, or I listened to rock and roll music, or whatever. No. The heart of it is that I want to be the righteous ruler of my own life. I want to have my own standard of righteousness. I want to be the object of my own satisfaction. And what happens is we go out into the world and we end up not only using things, but far too often using people to that very end. Here's the problem. Nothing finite, including you and me, was ever meant to be an end in itself. God made us to know him. He's the end. He's the aim. He's the goal. He's the only thing that's enough. And he's the only thing wherein we can find our life so that we can truly be whole. And believe about ourselves that because of Christ, we too are enough. By grace, through faith, alone. Perhaps this is why the very first question of the shorter catechism written for children, little children who used to memorize this catechism, why are you here? We know you have desires. We know you long for them to be satisfied. What's your purpose in life? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see how it doesn't bypass the very real and deep human concern of the satisfaction of desire? You're here to bring glory to God and to enjoy Him in who He is and who He's made you to be and let that light shine brightly in the world. So again, the problem is not desire, but misdirected desire in objects that are incapable of keeping their promises. C.S. Lewis, of course, puts it better than we ever could. In the weight of glory, a familiar quote, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but in fact too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go about making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased." God promotes our deep desire. We are to hunger and thirst. But we must hunger and thirst. We must desire the right thing. This is the second observation. He promotes our deep desire, but we must desire the right thing. Our desires must be rightly directed toward real righteousness. So what is it? Now, much could be said about the word righteousness, which is a very common word in both the Old and the New Testament. But let me try to provide a definition. God's righteousness is the revelation of his holy character, the intention of his perfect will, and the actions of his powerful justice at work, quote, on earth as it is in heaven. Or to summarize, his ways being done in the world. His uprightness, his holiness in action in the world toward justice. That's what righteousness is. Hunger and thirst after that. To know God and to make him known. 
to go out into the city that the Lord has given us and not fold our arms and despise it and complain about this and that and that person's on the corner and there's weeds in the median and all these things. But instead, because of God's righteousness to us in Christ, to go out with humility, to take the low place and to do something about it. And so in this sense, God's righteousness isn't merely a concept, but it is a relationship that we are in with God. Let me put it this way. Another good translation for the word righteousness, especially in its New Testament usage, is covenant justice. God is righteous and he is holy and we stand before him, which means we are called to uprightness and holiness. The legal demands of God's law are clear and contractual. He's the king, we are his servants. We don't get to make our own way. We don't get to invent our own life. It's the very first sin of Adam in the garden. God sets up for Adam a covenant of works. Look, Adam, do this and you will live. You got the whole garden. Try to make a life for yourself and be your own righteousness and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and be a moral rule and standard to yourself and think that righteousness comes from within you because you're a special snowflake and you will die. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will die. And what does Adam, our first father, do? And what do we all do? Sadly, we fail. And that's why we see the injustice and the unrighteousness of man all around us. I'm fond of saying, but it's so important. I mean, how can we not get this right? It's 2021, we have the internet. For goodness sake, we have robots and cyber trucks, and what more do you want? We could practically feed the whole world through the food we throw away on any given year in this country. How do we still have all these issues in the world? It's because they're not circumstantial. They're not exterior. They're not external things that, you know, we need behavioral adjustment. We need a new heart. And so what do we do? We have justice issues that we care about, but other ones that we sort of slip under the rug. Certain things that we hobby horse and other things that we conveniently ignore, except for the righteous justice of God has them all intertwined. And they will all be set right and made new in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's pretty simple. Here's what you need to do. You who want to be blessed and live the life and the way of the kingdom. Make God your number one aim. Make his name shine out here in Santa Fe. Bear the fruit of the gospel. Forgive. Move toward people that you don't like. Be a peacemaker and a reconciler. Serve. As it were, let every week be a gifts for the king week in your life. Because the kingdom blessing of verse 6 is for those who long for, hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. Those are the ones who will be satisfied. Or as Jesus says in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given unto you. Now, brothers and sisters, we know that is the way. We long to live in that way. But most of you also have mirrors in your homes. And hear the scripture to us, not in a way that condemns, but in a way that properly situates us, not in Adam, but in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, is a mirror to us. How are you doing with that? How are you doing in your life with always seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? And trusting with total freedom and abandon by faith that everything will be given unto you. Well, some of you here are not only more spiritual than I am, but you know who sings what songs. And so you might be doing better than me. But as I really got into this this week, I, I knew that Jesus, as a perfect surgeon, was allowing the conviction that he welled up in my heart. 
I know what I hunger and thirst after. I know my defense mechanisms. I know where I hide. I know what I long for. I know what I so often think is going to satisfy me, even though it so often does not. And then, and if you want to see this come out of me, then, you know, just confront me on something. Blessed are the wounds of a friend, says Proverbs. Just confront me on something. I have a lot of sin in my life, so, you know, come and let me know what you're seeing. And we'll see if I react with utter humility, you know, or if self-righteousness starts to rear its ugly head. And the most putrid form of self-righteousness is religious self-righteousness, wherein we use a bunch of big Bible words to protect ourselves, stand there with our arms crossed, act justified, and not even believe that the Holy Spirit might work through someone else to bring conviction into my life. I came across this quote this week, which kind of laid me low. Who you are when you're alone. Ooh, I already don't like it. (laughs) Who you are when you're alone, when you're at home, when no one's watching, when you're around those who are vulnerable, weak, annoying, under your care, or even out of your control. Who you are there, not only in your actions, but also in your thoughts. Gotcha. That's who you really are. Ooh. Jesus exposes this very thing to those who are listening to this sermon in Matthew chapter 6. Because the Jews were extremely righteous and pious. They make us all look like chumps, okay? And they had three major forms of piety unto the righteousness of God. Fasting, prayer, and giving. He addresses those in this sermon in chapter 6. And then he says something that scandalizes the whole crowd. And honestly leaves people feeling a little bit like, Man, Jesus, why did I come to church today? He says, if your righteousness does not surpass that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Folks, these were professional religious people par excellence who not only strove from, you know, dawn till dusk to keep every law in Torah, you know, all the ones you you don't even know about because you haven't even read the Old Testament in a while, all of those, and they added 420 laws to the law. He says, if it doesn't exceed that, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that, you could just imagine the people who were gathered around this mountainside, the the women, the children, the, the men, just ordinary people with ordinary day jobs who, you know, stub their toe and unrighteousness flows freely from their mouths. Sitting here going, well, if they can't get in, if the Pharisees can't get in, and we like to caricature the Pharisees, don't do that. These guys were honestly trying the best they could to keep every single law so that they could usher in the Messiah. They just had the whole thing wrong. They thought that somehow if they were good enough, they could be the new Adam. They didn't realize that God was going to have to send the new Adam, and it would have to be God himself. That's why Isaiah 64 says, look, our our righteousness, whatever we have to offer, uh, Lord, is this enough? You're holy, you're sovereign, you're perfect, you hold the whole universe together by the word of your power, you're just, you can't wince at sin, I'm a covenant breaker, but hopefully these six and a half good deeds outweighed by, you know, the four and a half bad things that I did earlier, you know, hopefully this is enough. And friends, that is a devastating way to live. You cannot live that way as a Christian. That's not a Christian way of thinking because if we do that, it's, it's okay, it's a gamble. God, will you, will you take it? Will you not take it? Is enough? I don't know. That's called paganism. 
That's why in the pagan religions, they were, did I give enough bread? I mean, did they, was the incense the right flavor? I don't know. Does the Lord like, you know, magic mushroom or does he like purple haze? I, you know, it was never enough. You were never sure. You always had to be doing more. It was a crapshoot. No. And so the question is raised. And it's why I'm so, it's why I kind of get fired up about this. I have a lot of resonance with this because I feel like a lot of people who are believers in Jesus Christ still live under the condemnation of a sense of needing to supply and conjure up their own righteousness in their walk with God. And we should be led here through this blessing to a simple question. Who can enter in then? Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who has clean hands and a pure heart when you're alone, when no one's looking, not only in your actions, but also in your thoughts all the time, perfectly, because that is what the covenant justice of God demands. He cannot wince at sin. And from here, lifted up as it were, on display for all to see, with arms spread wide in cruciform fashion, is the promise of our satisfaction. This is why the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount was to show the people of God, these diligent Jews, that they could not earn God's favor on their own. They had to, they had to forsake their own righteousness and receive only that which could come to them as a gift through God the Son himself. The promise of satisfaction is two things. The first is that we are satisfied in God and the second, that we are satisfied for God. We are satisfied in God. Now, here's the good news for you, sons and daughters. I don't care how old you are, what you've been through, or what you were doing last night, or what you did last summer. This is the good news for all of us. We are satisfied in God, in His finished work. No one hungers and thirsts for righteousness like God. No one. No one. No one hungers and thirsts for covenant justice and uprightness to be on display in the world like God. And no one knows better than God that his holy righteousness must be satisfied, the covenant must be kept. And so in this sense, get ready for it, you are saved by works. You are saved by works. But not like the Pharisees not keeping every little jot and tittle and then adding another 420 for good measure. No, you are only saved and forever saved and always saved in the work of another. Someday we will stand before God at the great white throne of judgment and what you will have in your hands is either whatever you're able to cobble together to put on display, is it enough? Or your hands will be empty and Christ will say, they're mine. I did the work. I finished it. I lived a perfect life to keep the law. I died on a cross not only to satisfy the broken covenant and demands of their sin, but to satisfy the justice of God, and even more than that, to give them now, because of God's justice, my own righteousness. Which is why perhaps one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul says to the church in Corinth, for our sake... God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Jesus took on the curse of the cross as a covenant breaker under the just wrath of God, but he knew no sin. He was perfect. 
He had earned his right to be the pure and spotless lamb as one who kept the law perfectly so that in Jesus we might become what? The righteousness of God. Now it is the people of God, hidden with Christ in God, by faith in God, not works for God, who are the very righteousness of God. That's the best news in the world. That's the kind of news that says, you know what? I had a good day. I had a bad day. My entire life is hidden in Christ. And it's only out of that power and that strength that we can be motivated now to properly do the good works in the world that God's given us to do to live this life of kingdom blessing, to hunger and thirst for real righteousness, to be satisfied, to be free, to be free because we know that who we are is found in whose we are. And can you imagine what Santa Fe sees when they see that? Oh, I long for that for me and for you, that our friends and our neighbors and dinner parties and Christmas parties and people, you know, Oh, you're, you're a Christian, so you think you're better than everybody? Oh, far from it. Far from it. I have no righteousness of my own. All I have is one who stood in my place, stood there perfectly so that I know on my best day and my worst day, I know. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the satisfaction that you have given to us for free forever in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It sounds strange to our ears to say that we are saved by works. But clearly the scripture teaches that the demands of a holy God and his perfect covenant must be met. Jesus, we are so glad that even though we are all born in the line of our first father, Adam, you have sent Jesus, your son, the second Adam, to finish the work, to do it perfectly, and then to give us all the riches and inheritance and benefits of that work for free as a gift that we receive by faith alone. So when we come on any given day hungering and thirsting, Jesus, we can know that it is not on the condition of what we have to offer, but on what you have already offered. And God is satisfied, and you are satisfied, and we are satisfied so that we can come week and week out and be satisfied again. Would you make that true to us at this table? Would you remind us, Jesus, that this is the covenant meal? This is the meal that pictures your body being broken, your blood being spilt as the pure and spotless lamb to keep the covenant that we could never keep. And to give us all the benefits of that covenant for free, Lord. We are not invited to this table as, you know, penitent slaves. Get yourself right. Beat yourself up. You know, remember all the bad stuff you've done. We are invited as children because it's already done. We get the full inheritance of the riches of all the glory of Christ credited to our account. And perhaps even better than that, we get a meal. God, you love us so much, you give us a meal. The true bread of life true living water. So we come now by faith to your promises. Satisfy us here. Amen.